You're listening to the Media People Podcast, the show where we learn about the people who make up the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. It's part two of our chat with Marilyn Sherman, Media Director at 26.2 International. In this episode, we chat about her time at Echo Advertising in 26.2, we also get further insight into the unique workings of the agency world as Marilyn shares a story with us about how an out-of-home rep pitched the wrong solution for the wrong advertiser and how it inadvertently turned out to be the right solution that helped Marilyn and her team win over a new client. This, of course, leads us into a discussion about the erosion of FaceTime between agencies and media sales reps and why it's more important than ever to reverse this trend. If you haven't already, you can catch up on part one of our chat on SoundCloud or iTunes. Our relationship, uh, well, Len and I are still working together 31 years later, but um, so, uh, my time at Echo was over 20 years. 20 years. You agency. don't see that in this business. A lot of people move yeah. around, but yeah. uh, no, you were like a bedrock there. So tell us about your time at Echo. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, so the same way my career at, at started at Safra on retail, and if you think about retail, it's transactions. That's what retail is. Yep. It's a little less about building brands and it's a lot more about transactions, making the turnstile turn, putting a bum in seat, making cash register ring, all that part of transactions. Um, Len's background was the entertainment business, record business. He, he grew up uh, on CBS Records, was his early career. He worked at a couple different record companies. Yes, record companies. And uh, basically his vision was to create the number one ad agency for the entertainment business in Canada and North America, really. And uh, when I started at Echo, there were 12 people. And in our heyday, we were over 200 people. So we really did grow the agency. I grew it from a three-person media department to over 40 people at one point. Was it hard, though, to keep that small agency culture when you hit the 200 mark? It was certainly a little bit more difficult. Uh, we kept a very entrepreneurial um, atmosphere, uh, much like I, I learned at Safer, um, and Len was very similar. We let people kind of have enough rope that they didn't hang themselves. <laughs> we didn't let anybody drown, but we sure, certainly let the water get pretty high up the chin. But nobody drowned. We, we, we didn't let anybody really, you know, fail, but we certainly gave lot people lots of room to excel. And I'm very proud to say there's a lot of people who cut their chops at Echo, got their career started at Echo, and have moved on to be very successful in this business. And uh, it's kind of funny, you just, you know, have reps come in or other buyers that we meet and you start to talk and don't you remember me? I was at Echo. Yeah, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> Sometimes I don't, but I have to say I do. Gotcha. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that because on your LinkedIn profile, one thing that you do have there is you mentioned that you really like mentoring and hiring the best talent. Tell us about that facet of your job. I think that was one of, um, that was a cultural thing we did at Echo. So, you know, remember the, the good old days at Echo, again, I'm going back to the 90s. Um, we would have a philosophy that every year we would raid the top school or programs. And Humber College had I don't really have it anymore, but literally a media advertising and sales program. We called it Barb and Donna's Kids, yep, but I've it was, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of, I'm a Barb and Donna's Kid. So Humber College, uh, originally, originally at Finch, and then it moved to the Lakeshore campus. And really, they did an excellent job. Um, they had both a fast track program for university graduate kids, a two-year program, and they had, I think, a three- or four-year program where you literally came out as a, a media buyer planner or a sales rep. 
and uh, our, our relationship with the course, I guess lectured there and supported the program as many ways as possible, but you had an internship at the end. If you were a student in the program, you had to do a six-week internship to graduate. So ECHO was renowned that we always took one or two or even three students sometimes if I had a place and a desk. And at the end of those, we always asked for the best and the brightest, and if they reached our standards, we would hire them. Um, even if I wasn't looking for staff, I and mean, we didn't pay a lot, but I always found a little bit of money and said, okay, I'm going to hire rising stars coming out of school because I know that my kids after two, three, four years are going to have, want to move to greener pastures, often moved into sales or, you know, rep positions or moved on to other agencies. And that was one of our philosophies is hire them, bring them in, train them. And I am quite proud that we've groomed, hired, groomed, and brought in a lot of really good talent into the industry, and they cut their chops at, at Echo Advertising. Would you say that attitude you have towards um, mentoring people uh, rubbed off on you from your earlier gig, or your early gigs? Because it sounds like you were surrounded by uh, a number of people you could look up to and call on as mentors in your first gig. I agree. I think at Saffer, um, Ann Raymond, uh, Julius Freilich, who I believe is still in the industry, there was Carl Lieberman, there were some great you know, media directors, co-media directors who I got to work with who gave me the chance and you know let me cut my teeth and try things and do things and write media plans and go to client meetings probably way before the time that I should have been allowed to do it. Um, you know, based on how things go in the industry now, usually you have to, you know, wait a year or two before you even get to buy a market on your own or go to a meeting with a client. Um, so very much, I think it was that entrepreneurial spirit by media directors that I got to work with. And I decided that was going to be my style as well as give them opportunities Tell us a little bit more about uh, the environment at Echo, working on entertainment clients. Uh, I used to be kind of like an unofficial movie rep back in the day where I had a lot of studios just in my territory. I know some people frown on that. They think that it's a little too fast-paced. Sometimes it's unpredictable because you've got a changing schedule every year, more movies, fewer movies, different release dates. I thought it was fantastic. I relished at the chance to work on movie clients Uh so tell us a bit about uh, what it was like at Echo then, managing them. So um, first of all, I'm probably one of the few people that's been 17 years. I think there's a couple others, but you can count on one hand the number of media buyers who got on movie business and stayed with it. So Echo handled Alliance Atlantis for 17 years. First movie was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, God, See, everything comes around. Yep. Yes. So that would have been in the 80s, I think, 90s. And we just released the reboot <laughs> yeah, last year. I know. The sequel it's comes out weird. next summer. Everything goes around. Uh, so we worked on movie business for 17 years, and you are so right. Um, I'd put certain buyers on movie business and watch them just crumble. doesn't mean they weren't great buyers. They just weren't cut out for it. So what made me love movie business? I loved the fat pa fast pace. didn't bother me that movies and plans were changing all the time. But if it bothered you that you had to write and rewrite a plan 40 times or that you would come in Monday morning – and plan to do one project and then get the phone ring at 10 o'clock and you'd review the numbers of the weekend and all of a sudden you were buying holdover weight and heavy up weight or you were canceling weight because the movie you know, took a dive and you had to cancel all the weight that you had for a week too. If you, didn't ha if you couldn't handle that pace, it didn't work for you. Um, I know a lot of movie clients who, you know, kind of just bought a whole bunch of media and then allocated it by film. We wrote different plans for every film. Every film had a different target, different genre. Um, in the heyday at Alliance, we worked on over 40 movies a year. 
Yeah. Oh, that's like every week we had movies. Like at one point we were releasing one or two movies a week sometimes. Now sometimes studios are in here between 10 and 25. I won't name the studio, but I had one where they did really well one year. And then the following year, it was very poor. So that to make up for it, because you know how it is with movie clients, you could have, you plan for the year in advance. Right. And that sets the tone for the next year. So even though you're like, you put out 20 movies, but they sank. And I remember having to go back to my boss and being like, they went from 22 movies to 14 movies. You can't expect the same amount of money. Right. And you know what else has disappeared for movie clients now that I'm working on it in digital? The concept of a week two buy. Is that what they called it? Yeah, after yeah, the release over. week. The holdover. the holdover. Okay. Yeah, the week two or the holdover buy. I don't see that at yeah. all anymore. It seems like the Sunday after the movie's been released or even the Saturday, that's it. You stop with the media. Yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not working on any major movie client. We work on a couple of very small Canadian producer ones. Um, but you're right. The films don't just don't get held over. I, I think, I mean, I have to inter- interview a uh, whoever's working on the big movie studios right now. But I believe what's happening is just more product. So that film moves out. And at the end of the day, they're all making their money on the back end, whether it's the digital release of the film or you know the the, mm-hmm. the play on tv so i think they're supporting more of the digital release that's one thing i wanted to ask you home entertainment because that was something that started to take off i assume as you were at echo yeah the so end did- of uh, the end of my career at echo so in the mid 2000s I remember one of the last pictures I worked on was Wedding Crashers, and it did huge at the you know video store. But there's no more video store. Even no, Walmart that, doesn't sell videos no, anymore. No, that, that, that's tanking completely. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, what was the opportunity like to kind of grow that segment? Because I imagine it was in its infancy. It was a huge opportunity, and you know we really watched the dollars move from the theatrical release to where they could really make money is in selling the DVDs. And I can remember Christmas time, we used to do huge pushes on buying DVDs, first VHSs, but then DVDs for Christmas gifts. But yeah, that's a while ago. That's history. <laughs> Speaking of history with Echo, uh, in 2005, it was sold. You mentioned that. So how did that change the nature of the business? Yeah, that was an interesting time. So, you know, weren't Echo wasn't looking to be sold. I mean, Len wasn't really looking to make any changes, but sometimes an offer is too good to turn down, and there was uh, a lot of money thrown um, our way. Um, we all made a little bit of money, not enough to retire, and I was too young to retire, but uh, there was a nice little bit of money uh, paid out for Echo. Um, new owners came in. They were a company out of the UK, really knew nothing about the Canadian marketplace or the US marketplace, um, but felt that an ad agency would be nice to compliment. They were in the promotions business, sponsorship business. I don't even remember all the details, but they brought their own people in. Um, Len was asked to leave, which was a very hard day in my life. And they brought their new people in and basically within a year ran Echo to the ground. It's a complicated time and probably one I don't need to spend a lot of time on. But needless to say, um, I got out before the very end and And, uh, uh, had an opportunity to leave. So I took it. And where did that opportunity come from? So a bunch of um, creative people and account servicing people left um, to a small agency called The Collective. They were actually called something else before that, but uh, ended up being renamed The Collective. And basically, they were a very entrepreneurial retail-type ad agency, handled a bit of shopping malls. So I certainly knew a lot about shopping malls from my Saffir days. Uh, They handled uh, clients in the real estate uh, business, um, mostly malls, but some real estate as well, and um, had no concept of a media department. It was basically account servicing people 
and I think there were about 12 people there at the time. So they had creative people and account servicing people. And basically any media, basically a print ad, because that's all they ever did, that had to be booked. The account servicing people booked a print ad. They picked up the phone and called and booked a print ad. And that was already 2005. So should have been a bit more <laughs> elaborate. Certainly there was a lot more to media then. So basically I had an opportunity to start a media department in a small upstart agency. And um, it was a great opportunity to start all over. I mean, because you think about at Echo, I had certainly built a media department, well-established. There were probably about 20 people in the media department when I left Echo. Um, We had obviously gone from much larger to much smaller, um, and it was time to start over. So it was, again, a good opportunity to be able to hire people, bring in young talent again, and uh, begin working, um, you know, with a very entrepreneurial shop, as I said. I just say one of my, you know, I know one of the questions later you're going to ask, but it was actually at the collective, one of um, most interesting accounts that I got to work on. And it was um, the Ride to Conquer Cancer. Okay. The um, There's a whole bunch of them, but there was the Underwear Fair, the Ride to Conquer Cancer, and the Weekend Walk, um, which were fundraising events, great causes, obviously. And this was a client that hadn't done anything on digital. Basically, everything was radio, television, radio, television. Basically, all the ad dollars were put to broadcast. Very transactional because everything was about signing people up for the event. And um, I was able to work with um, some key online suppliers and create a cost – before cost per acquisition was really the in <laughs> thing. So this was 2006, 2007. But we created a cost per acquisition model where we only paid the digital companies. And Yahoo was one of the first, so I'm very excited to work with Yahoo at that stage, who agreed to we'd only pay based on people signing up or agreeing to give their email and then signing up for the events. Um, So it wasn't about raising money. It was just about agreeing to ride in the ride or um, walk the walk. So it was a real cost per acquisitional way before CPA was, was an in thing to do. Not sure they're doing it anymore, but it was done in the in the 2000s while I was at the collective, and it was a great success. Looking back on uh, your career, how has the dynamic changed between, say, rep and agency or media supplier and agency? Because I remember when I got my first break at CBC and I was a coordinator there, a lot of the senior television reps who started in the 70s and 80s would be like, we didn't email or fax anything off. We walked over with the buy sheet. They signed it, and we walked back with it. <laughs> The good old days. Um, I think that's a part of our industry. I mean, obviously, we have this wonderful technology. Email's wonderful. Voicemail. The fact that you can email a contract and have it back and sign it online. Even some of them have automatic signature signing online. Um, But I think it's really sad that we've gone away from the face-to-face. I'm really pro-face-to-face. If any rep who's listening knows that if you call me and you want to come in for a presentation, we make the time. If I really don't want to see you, I might tell you to come in at 4 o'clock on Friday. But aside (laughs) from that, we make the time. So I think it's really, really important. And I'm very disappointed when I hear and sales reps tell me all the time, buyers don't even return my calls. They don't even answer the emails. And certainly they don't allow for face-to-face meetings. So I'm going to tell you the true story. And I tell this at Every lecture, every year when I go out to Humber College or any of the other colleges that I get to guest lecture, I talk about relationships and how relationships get built and why you should see every single rep. So here's how the story goes. And I don't know exactly what year, but it was during my Echo days. 
a rep called, and I was working on live entertainment. Um, that was the the client brought Phantom of the Opera and Joseph, and there was a play called Sunset Boulevard. And Sunset Boulevard was playing up in North York at that Toronto Centre for Performing Arts up at Young and Shepherd. Yep. So this rep calls me, and he's, uh, I literally think he was just off the boat. Literally, South African accent. Hi, just arrived. Don't ask me how he got his name, how he got my name. But anyhow, hi, I'm uh, Les Abro, because I'm going to tell you who it is. And I have this great idea for Sunset Boulevard, but I have to come and show you. And he says something about a parking lot boom arm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So I tell him, and I could tell, like, oh, what's this guy? He's just wasting my time. But I agree to see him, 4 o'clock on a Friday. And he walks in, in the summer, he walks in at 4 <laughs> o'clock on a Friday, literally carrying this fiberglass sleeve. You know what the boom arms look yep. like? They go up and down. So he's carrying this sleeve, and he's done artwork, and it says, this way to Sunset Boulevard. Horrible creative idea. Because it's not that way, except he's got that one parking lot near Young and Shepherd. So he comes in and he tells me, I've got this parking lot near Young and Shepherd. I can put your ad on it. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going to sell a show on one little sleeve this way to Sunset Boulevard. That's not going to sell me a ticket. And in the meantime, we were pitching a client in the mutual fund business. And I just said, stay here in this little boardroom. And I went running (laughs) around to Len at the time, who was writing the pitch. And I said, Len, I got an idea. This guy says he can get all the parking lots. I said, what if we could get for this mutual fund client, um, reach all the financial districts so that all the financial planners, accountants, bank people, et cetera, can be hit with our ad every time they go in and out of work and drive into the parking lots. Len says, where's this guy? And we go running and we sit with them and we say, okay, go get me all the parking lots in the financial core. And we tell him which buildings we want or whatever. And the truth was he didn't have them yet. I didn't know that until after. He said, yeah, no problem. I'm going to get them for you. <laughs> he didn't have them. He had no clue how it should be priced. Basically, we sent him away. And my feeble brain, I'm not very creative, but I was going to say this, it was dynamic. Dynamic mutual funds always going up with an arrow on the parking lot arm. But of course, mm-hmm. you can't say that because mutual funds sometimes don't go up. But anyhow, we then wrote our pitch to the client and we said, we can get all these parking lots. Meantime, Les Abro and his company, Abcon, had to go figure out how to get these parking lots. <laughs> he had to go work with the landlords and whatever, but he figured it out. He didn't get all of them, but he got enough. And we used it as part of our pitch. We won the business. We ended up doing a deal. The first year, I think I spent $60,000 with him because he had no clue how to cost it. He couldn't even tell me how many cars, how many eyeballs. I said, okay, let's just count the number of parking spots and we'll estimate every spot turns over 1.5 times. We made a whole formula and we figured out how to buy it and he figured out how to sell it. The moral of my story is we wouldn't have won the account if I hadn't seen this rep come up with a big idea ended up helping make his company a lot of money. We went from spending $60,000 to over a million dollars in that with that company wow. over a couple over a very short period of time. And all because I agreed to see him on a Friday at 4 o'clock. So it helped me win a piece of business, helped me come up with a great medium, and the client used that medium for 10 years. So that's a lot of money. And both of you got, went into this meeting with different expectations. <laughs> totally. And you came out with it with a huge opportunity. Win, win, win is really what I can say. And it's happened before. I've, we've had other you know reps come in with an idea or pitching one thing. And basically, we work out in a different direction. See, people are calling you right now. All They're the time. Listening this to phone this. rings Someone... constantly, <laughs> even at 10 to 6. <laughs> Someone's trying to sell you a subway station or another. They, they found another they parking found, lot. They found That's another parking lot. <laughs> totally. 
Anyhow, please, to all sales reps, just keep bugging it. Hopefully, the good buyers will see you. And buyers, make sure you answer your phone. Yep, they need to hear that. And do face-to-face meetings. It's important. Yeah, there's less and less of that. Uh, So after that, is this when you found your way to 26.2 International? So um, Collective was kind of a short stint, and uh, I was there, I guess, about four or five years. Uh, At the time, Len Gill had kind of did a few other things. Remember, Len and I had worked together for over 20 years at Echo. Mm -hmm. Um, We still work together. Um, In fact, while I was at the Collective, Len was working on a couple projects, and I was helping him buy media even while I was at the Collective. And then Len decided, okay, 26.2 is really growing. He'd picked up some accounts in New York, including Superman or Spider-Man on Broadway. And, oh, uh, Turn Off the Dark. Turn Off the Dark. That was and, very controversial. Uh, yeah, and there was Rock of Ages. And suddenly Len was busier than ever. And he said, okay, enough of you at the collective. You're going to come back and join me. I need you full time. <laughs> so for a while, I kind of did a bit of both. And I was kind of helping the collective on a couple of projects and then – Len realized, okay, I need you full time. And my passion has always been entertainment. And as much as I enjoyed my time at the collective and and working on the not-for-profit accounts, I realized, you know, entertainment and working with Len was what I really wanted. So in 2010, I was 26 too. And I'm not saying we're the next entertainment agency, but uh, I now get to work on a combination of entertainment and not-for-profit and uh, a couple of other fun accounts. So it's, it's all good. Talk to me about working on a theater client because in comparison to movie clients or, or uh, I mean, music clients or anything like that, it seems like they're a little bit more resilient to what's happening in the media landscape. Like we talk about home entertainment taking a dive because of piracy. Uh, movies are becoming few and far in between or because they're getting bigger budgets. What about, what about theater, though? I Has think li- live theater is also changing. I think the uh, if you look at the amount of shows that are out there, uh, you know, there's a lot of product. There's a lot of the old stuff. There's new stuff. Um, you know, I think today's generation uh, didn't grow up on the same type of theater. You know, the, the favorites like Phantom of the Opera and things like that. I mean, although it's coming back, uh, I think there's just more of it. Uh, you know, look at Toronto. I mean, there's so much theater here. It's, it seemed uh, to be back in the day much more regal and limited. And now they're taking like, I mean... You've got a lot of the big pop bands pumping out musicals and things like that, turning TV shows and whatnot into it. You know, the fun part, and uh, I would say also the nerve-wracking part of theater, is you just never know what's going to be a hit. You, you know what? I just worked on Cats, I guess it was two summers ago now. How many years Cats has kept playing here? Shock of shocks. I mean, we did phenomenally well. We sold, you know, thousands and thousands of tickets. And then you have other great shows that come into town and you can't give away a ticket. So you just never know. You never know what's going to do well. That That's the fun part, but that's also the angst. It's like you put a show on sale and you hold your breath because you don't know. And you guys don't just work on Canadian markets. You work on U.S. markets. And I'm, I've been pretty close with a lot of your uh, a lot of your employees before. And just listening to them talk about trying to buy radio in San Jose and they can just name off the markets. I mean, how do you – being based in Toronto, I guess, how do you get to learn the local U.S. marketplace for handling those buys? You know what? Now that we have internet, it's even easier. First of all, you can listen to a radio station. It's very simple to do. Uh, you know, it's easy. Go on the website, learn the station. We do a lot of market trips. We send buyers out to different markets too. One of my buyers is heading down to Washington next month and he's been working on some Washington buys. Uh, we have the show Sherlock Holmes going to Washington um, as well as playing Toronto. But um, David Arquette. Let's yes, plug David it. Arquette. Plug David, David Arquette. Arquette. 
in Sherlock Holmes from Scream. Toronto, end of October, and then we're uh, there's an LA date we're working on, Washington, Chicago, and, and Toronto. Um, so the real answer is. Uh, being a little agency up in Toronto buying U.S. media is great because when you call a local rep, they're like, oh, you're in Toronto. And it sounds funny, but quite often we're able to negotiate and get what I consider to be better deals because we're up in Toronto and they think that's kind of neat. It's kind of sexy. We're not going to go call them and, and blab to all the other buyers in the marketplace because we're just buying it for our little theater clients that's coming through town. So it seems to work well for us buying out of here. But we do, we make market trips and we go to the local markets and meet with reps all the time. This has been a wonderful chat. Uh, I wanted to close it off with one question I ask everyone. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? That was the toughest question. I know you gave me the heads up. I don't know what else I'd be doing. Um, You know what? I love the people of this business, so I'd want to do something related to the people industry, the people part of this industry. Become a headhunter? I guess. um, You know, maybe I would teach. Maybe I'd get in front of the students and get to have an experience with them. But I don't know. I'm, I'm lucky that I never had to think about it luckily i've never so been in that are, position <laughs> so let me ask you this then when you are teaching at humber and or, or you're doing guest lectures clearly there's a q a at the end someone has to ask you where you went to college <laughs> they do how do that's you the funniest that? or they ask me how do i get into this business and i gotta tell you my kids who are college university age now are like my you can't go and teach and guest lecture you're not even a college or university graduate uh yeah my story is quite unique i tell them don't don't do that path (laughs) that's just about tripping into it but um you know what i'd love to go back to school so probably my real answer to your question is i'd like to go back to school if i weren't working if i weren't doing this i think i'd like to be a student i'd love to go to university i don't know how many years i could do that for so i'd like to be a student and then be a teacher (laughs) i don't know if that's a real answer but i think if i ever retired from this business i'd go to school because i feel like i missed out uh you're not missing out on anything. You've got a wonderful <laughs> story here. Marilyn, thank you so much for your time. Thank really you, Victor. Appreciate this was fun. This. this was a lot of fun. Everybody should try doing this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it should be on my show. Don't get a competing podcast. No, not a competing. <laughs> Just Victor. If Victor calls, take his call. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast and follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.